I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. And nature has many unknowns, but one certainty is that tomatoes and fish do not have sex with each other. They never have. And yet one of the most famous, or some might say infamous, feats of genetic engineering was the development of a tomato whose DNA was mingled with DNA from a fish, which gave it a longer life on the vine. And it worked. Then there's corn, where today some 90% of the corn grown in the United States has its DNA mixed with DNA that comes from a bacterium so that it will stand up better to pests. And that works. And is this a good thing, this genetic engineering? that nature could never accomplish on its own? Is it a safe thing? Is it necessary? Well, those questions sound like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, genetically modify food. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will argue for and against this motion. Genetically modify food. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then the live audience here in New York votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion is genetically modified food. Let's meet the team first arguing for the motion. Please, let's welcome Robert Fraley. And, Rob, you are uh, Executive Vice President, Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto. You've worked there 30 years. You are the winner of the World Food Prize Laureate. That's an award often described as the Nobel for food and agriculture. And it's related to this debate because of your work on what exactly? Well, thanks, John. Uh, yeah, that was uh, a reward given uh, along with uh, two of my academic uh, colleagues for basically developing the uh, tools that have allowed us to create the GMO crops. There at the beginning. Robert Fraley, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. And I'm, and I'm joined tonight by my uh, partner, Allison Van Enenum, who is going to, uh, to talk about uh, the technology as well and the benefits. Ladies and gentlemen, Allison Van Enenum. Allison, you are also arguing for the motion genetically modified food. You're uh, a specialist in animal science at UC Davis. Uh, you said that you chose to study agricultural science when you were still in high school, but that it wasn't an obvious choice for you. How come? Well, I'm, I'm an urban girl. I was born in the city in Australia, and I'm kind of a science nerd. Still am, actually. Um, and I was interested in how we might use science to improve the productivity of agriculture, and it's what I've spent my career uh, pursuing. Thank you, Alison Van Enenum. That's the team arguing for the motion. We have two debaters arguing against the motion, genetically modified food. Let's please first welcome Chuck Benbrook. Chuck, you are at Washington State. You are known for your research on pesticide use in particular. You've debated with us before, actually. You were a proponent of uh, organic food, and you won overwhelmingly, very decisively. So are you feeling lucky again tonight? I am, uh, John. We've, uh, we're well prepared, Marty and I, and uh, since we have the facts and science on our side, I think we'll be fine. <laughs> and tell us, please, who is this Marty of which you speak? My partner, uh, Margaret or Marty Mellon, is uh, going to help me make the case. Ladies and gentlemen, Marty, Margaret Mellon. Mellon. Uh, Marty Mellon, 18 years, you were with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Interestingly, while a scientist, you are also a lawyer. 
You are also the only debater on stage tonight with a last name, Melon. That sounds like an actual edible product. (laughs) Coincidence? Uh, Well, I don't think so. But my last name also sounds like uh, a bank. And (laughs) money is probably as important as food in this debate. Very clever. Ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Mellon. And that's our team arguing against the motion, which is genetically modify food. I want to say this. I'm hearing hissing. I don't want to hear it, please. Um, and if we hear it, I would appreciate the audience silence the hisser with a round of, a, of, of, of civil applause because it's just not the way we want to go with it. Okay. So this is, now I'm going to get all light again. This is a debate, um, and in that sense, it's a contest. It's a contest of ideas and logic and argumentation and wit. And you, our live audience here, acts as the judges in that debate. Um, We have you vote twice, once before the debate and once again after the debate, on your views on the motion. And the team whose numbers have changed the most from the beginning to the end will be declared our winner. So let's go to the preliminary vote. If you go to those keypads at your seat, again, look at the motion, genetically modified food. If you agree with this motion as you come off the street, push number one. If you disagree, push number two. And if you're undecided, push number three. Uh, If you push the wrong button, just correct yourself. The system will lock in your last vote, and you can ignore the other keys. They're not live. Okay, we're going to lock it out. So just remember again how you voted this time and listen to the arguments, and we'll see how you vote the next time. And again, the team with the difference in percentage point terms, the greatest difference, will be declared our winner. Our motion is this, genetically modified food. We go in three rounds, and let's go on to round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be uninterrupted. They will be seven minutes each. Here to argue for the motion, please welcome Robert Fraley. He is Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Fraley. John, thanks, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, this subject is uh, very important to me. It's, it's really been, uh, been my life. It started, uh, I grew up on a, uh, on a family farm in the uh, central part of the United States. I was one of those... Uh, I wouldn't have thought of myself as a nerd, but I was one of those kids who, uh, who always knew he wanted to be a scientist. And I had the, I had the unique privilege after getting my uh, doctorate degree to uh, attend the University of California at San Francisco, which was kind of the epicenter where, uh, where GMO research uh, started. And uh, even back then, it was pretty clear that, uh, that GMO technology would have a profound implication in healthcare. And uh, just as a, as a quick test to the audience, how many of you know anybody who's a diabetic and who takes insulin? So a lot of hands. So actually, insulin was the first GMO product. And, uh, and now uh, you know, that's the, the typical treatment, uh, and it's a, a safer, better product. Today in healthcare, just to, to give you a sense of the transformation, six of the top-selling drugs in the United States are based on GMO technology. So tremendous progress. Let me, uh, let me make it a little more food-related. How many of you eat cheese? All right. The first actual GMO product ever approved for food use was a product called, uh, called Renin. 
Renin is the enzyme that's actually used to, to, to make cheese. And today, 90% of our cheeses are, are based on GMOs using a safer approach and a more effective way of, uh, of making the technology. So as I said in the introduction, um, you know, I helped develop the first GMO plants back in the, uh, in the early uh, 1980s. And then we took... Uh, about another 15 years of additional studies and development before the first commercial products were launched in the, uh, in the mid-1990s. And those were products that help farmers protect against insects and protect against weeds. So for insect protection, we actually use the very same BT protein that is used by organic farmers for years and built that into the plants to protect them from insects. And as a result of that, we saw dramatic reduction in insecticide use and an increase in, uh, in crop yields. And then herbicide-tolerant crops. And, and herbicide-tolerant crops have been a great enabler. They've enabled farmers to use safer and more environmentally friendly chemicals and replace the products that were, uh, were previously used, but they've also had a, a profound benefit to the environment of, uh, of enabling farmers to, uh, to not plow their soils and, as a result, use less energy, release less carbon, and, uh, and, uh, and reduce erosion, which have been key. Today, if you look around the world, GMO crops are grown in about 27 countries. They're being used by 18 million, uh, million farmers. And to put it in perspective, this has been the most rapidly adopted technology in the history of, of agriculture. And that's because the benefits have been so real and so clear. As I said, it's reduced pesticide use. It's helped farmers to uh, to produce more food and bring it, uh, you know, from their harvest into uh, into the into uh, into the con into consumption. It's preserved our soils. It's reduced greenhouse gas emissions and a lot of benefits. Now you're going to hear different perspectives tonight on the technology, but here's a simple logic test. As I said, I grew up on a farm. I've watched my dad make those decisions on which seeds to buy, which equipment to use, etc. Etc. I can tell you that there's no farmer who would plant GMO crops if they didn't have a real benefit. And they certainly wouldn't have planted them for the last 20 years if they didn't have real value. So the impact of, of GMOs has been amazing and, and lots of applications across companies and universities. And my partner, uh, Dr. Allison Van Ennenem, is going to describe a lot of those applications that, that are still being uh, developed. I'd like to step back and say as a scientist and a father, uh, the safety of these products is uh, is absolutely on on the on the on the top of my mind and what i'm most proud about is the fact that these technologies have been in the marketplace for over 20 years and there's not been a single not one issue of food or feed safety ever associated with the technology and i'd make this point that there's as strong a scientific consensus on the safety of gmos as, I, as there is on the, uh, on the role of greenhouse gases and, uh, and climate change. So that's, uh, that's very important. The last area I'd like to highlight is that this safety actually starts with the fact that mankind has been genetically modifying and selecting crops from the beginning of, uh, of time. And whether you're looking at modern-day corn or tomatoes or you're looking at peaches or, uh, or soybeans, we've been moving genes around from the, uh, from the beginning of time. But through biotechnology, we're able to do it even more precisely, literally one gene at a time, and, and that's key. Also, this technology is highly regulated. It's regulated by the government agencies in the U.S., but it's important to realize that we export grains to 40 countries around the world who have all researched and approved these products. Uh, 
Allison's going to talk about some of the safety studies. Bottom line from those studies is these are the most thoroughly studied foods in our food supply, and they are absolutely uh, safe. Now, let me make a couple of quick points as a scientist who's been involved in this his, uh, his whole career. First of all, GMOs are not the holy grail. What they are is an important tool, if used properly, can have a, a huge impact in bringing remarkable new products to, to farmers and benefit consumers for a long time. Second, GMOs aren't the only tool we need. We need to continue to invest in plant breeding. We need to continue to invest in new areas like precision agriculture. We need to invest in organic farming techniques and, and other tools. And finally, let me just say, GMOs, are they perfect? Absolutely not. Um, you know, they need to be uh, regulated. They need to be managed wisely, like, uh, like any technology. And, for example, we know that insects can become resistant to GMO crops, just like they can to other insecticides. We know that, uh, that weeds can evolve resistance, whether, you know, to herbicides, whether those are herbicides used in GMO crops or, or other systems. Uh, but I also know that, uh, and, and I acknowledge that these are legitimate concerns, but I also know that the science can make a, a huge impact to, to manage these technologies. Technologies. So, and, and this is so key as we uh, as we uh, we think about the future, because we are on the brink of facing one of mankind's greatest challenges. Global population continues to grow. It's going to reach 9.5 billion by 2050. Another two or three billion people will join the middle class. The demand for food will double by uh, by 2050. And so, the decisions we make and the votes that you make tonight are uh, are really important. We will need to produce more food in the next 36 years than we have in the entire history of the world. So it's a daunting challenge, and we're going to have to do that in the face of climate change and water shortage as we go forward. But I want to be clear, and I want to leave you with this optimistic note as I summarize. We can do this, but it means working together. And it means Robert finding Fraley, a common sorry, ground. I'm sorry your time is up. And using all of our tools. I'm so sorry I, your time is up. Thank you very thank much, you. Robert Fraley. Thank you. Our motion, Genetically Modified Food, and here to speak against this motion, Margaret Mellon. She is a science policy consultant and former founding director of the Union of Concerned Scientists Food and Environment Program. Ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Mellon. Thank you very much, um, and thanks to Rob. Um, he made a number of points that I think uh, we're going to come back to over the, uh, over the course of the debate. But I want to focus my remarks uh, really on just one point, and that is whether or not genetically modified or genetically engineered, I'm going to use those two words interchangeably, whether those technologies are essential or even an important uh, technologies for meeting the challenge of feeding 9 billion people without destroying the earth. And that means in raising our productivity but without uh, dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico without a Lake Erie or that has, you know, in some parts of the year is now just a toxic algal, algal soup. It's a huge challenge. Now, I'm going to argue against that, uh, but I understand why a lot of people believe that genetic engineering is the answer, and I think a lot of that has to do with the way the technology debuted. I mean, I was there in the early days when Monsanto came up with its products. I was working in Washington, D.C. for the environmental community. Um, the place was abuzz uh, with the idea that a new molecular technology was on the way that would convert agriculture uh, into a, an environmentally benign activity. Uh, 
I was at the wildlife, the National Wildlife Federation, when Monsanto folks came and said, you people in the environmental community ought to be the first to embrace this technology because it's going to reduce pesticide use. I wanted to learn more, and I did, when I went to Monsanto and got the tour out in St. Louis. And I was told it's not only going to reduce toxic use of of chemicals, it's going to produce crops that can uh, fertilize themselves. It's going to produce crops that are high-yielding, that will make famine a thing of the past, uh, that are uh, resistant to stress, to cold, to to drought, to heat. it was a it was a really compelling and and uh, a vision that I was really taken by. Uh, my big question was that it was a brand new technology using very new techniques, and would it work? Well, we have had now thirty years uh, to find out whether it's going to work. Billions of dollars uh, in investment in it, and I think uh, there's just no doubt that compared to the vision, the early vision, it's a big disappointment. Um, Now, after 30 years, there are no crops out there that fertilize themselves. There's one drought-tolerant crop that's drought-tolerant because of genetic engineering. There are no crops whose yields are the result of genetic engineering apart from making them uh, better able to deal with pests. You know, there, there are no genetically engineered crops that resist water logging. I mean, you name it, it really hasn't happened. Um, with one exception, which we've heard about, which is in the area of, uh, of, of pest management, genetic engineering has been wildly successful. I mean, people have adopted it all over the world. And, uh, and that's because in the early days... The technology did deliver. It made it possible. People that use Roundup Ready crops and BT crops, in the early days, their pesticide use went down. That's why their costs went down. That's why their farms were easier to manage, even as they got bigger. And farmers, you know, farmers were really happy about that. But, you know, as one farmer uh, has said uh, not too recently, the days of of glyph- I mean, we've run through the, the best herbicide that the, uh, that the world's had to offer. Glyphosate is no longer as useful as it once was, and it's getting less useful every day because resistant weeds are coming, and those resistant weeds are leading to more. Um, those resistant weeds are leading to uh, greater and greater use of herbicides. And we are now at a point where... I mean, if you look forward, I'm going to let my colleague, Dr. Benbrook, talk about this uh, more, but there is you know, nothing ahead of us except skyrocketing use, not only of glyphosate, which is uh, the major uh, herbicide in Roundup, but of other herbicides, 2,4-D, dicamba, herbicides we thought we'd never have to use much of, uh, much of again. So I guess to answer... Um, Oh, and I, want to, I do want to say that we, we now know why. I mean, genetically engineered, it, it turns out to be a lot harder to do genetic engineering than I think anybody thought in the early days. And it's especially hard when you're dealing with complex traits uh, that involve a, a number of genes. That's why yield and, 
and uh, trust, trust re- resistance have proven to be so difficult, but these pesticide technologies have involved really only the, the transfer of a single gene, and they, you know, they have worked in the case uh, of the, the two products we've talked about. But you know, to answer my first question, a technology that after 30 years has not delivered you know, on the, full, uh, on the full range of products that it kind of promised uh, to the public early on. And in the one application where it has delivered, the benefits of the technology are now being reversed and we are going in the direction of increased herbicide use. I mean, that is not a technology that is either essential or I would argue even important to addressing the major uh, agricultural challenges ahead of us. Fortunately, uh, we've got other technologies out there. They're far more powerful than genetic engineering. They're traditional breeding and agroecology. We're going to talk about them later. But before we can talk about them, we need to be clear about what genetic engineering can't do. And... uh, We don't want to ban it. We don't want to abandon research on it, but we do kind of want to move it off to the side of the of the stage. And in order to do that, you have to rebalance the debate. You have to kind of take the rose-colored glasses off. And you can start that process right here, right tonight, by voting no on genetically modified food. Thank you, Margaret Mellon. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, genetically modified food. You have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third. Here to debate for the motion, Alison Van Enenem. She is a genomics and biotechnology researcher and cooperative extension specialist in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. Ladies and gentlemen, Alison Van Enenem. Wow, it's a great turnout here tonight. It's not my usual audience. I spend a lot of my time talking to farmers and ranchers, and it's my pleasure to be here speaking to you tonight. I'd like to start with a premise that I hope we can all agree on, and that is, in the future, more people are going to need to be fed better with less environmental impact. And as a public sector scientist, my interest is finding real-world solutions to that problem. And to me, GM food offers one of those solutions. It's derived from crops produced using a breeding method based on the movement of useful genes from one species into another. Tonight, I'll spend some time discussing the impressive safety record of GM crops, how they've provided well-documented benefits, and how GM is sometimes uniquely able to deliver a useful trait, like crops that are more resilient to climate change. And I will contend that the benefits of GM are too great to vote anything but yes for GM tonight. GMO technology often gets conflated with Monsanto and Big Ag but it's actually a breeding tool, one that can be used for many purposes. In my own research in selection for disease-resistant cattle, I use many breeding methods, including classical selection for healthy animals and, more recently, the use of DNA markers to assist in selecting for disease-resistant genes. As a geneticist, I could envision how combining GM with these other breeding methods, because they are not mutually exclusive, could accelerate the progress of my publicly funded research program by enabling me to use GM to directly protect cattle from infection. This would be associated with reduced illness and the decreased use of antibiotics, something I think that perhaps is a common shared value amongst this group. 
As Rob mentioned, most commercialised GMO crops to date have been made to resist insects and herbicides and have been adopted by 18 million farmers globally. But importantly, 16.5 million of those farmers are in the developing world, both men and women, some of whom farm areas smaller than the size of the auditorium tonight. What have been the impacts of this widespread adoption? As a scientist, I go to the independent peer-reviewed literature to answer such questions, especially reviews and meta-analyses that present a summary of many independent studies. It's like a well-informed referee presenting an objective assessment of the state of play. Recently, German university professors published a comprehensive analysis of 147 separate studies that assessed the impact of GM crops. They found that the benefits were significant, not only in the US, but more importantly in the developing world. On average, GM technology adoption has reduced chemical pesticide use by 37%, increased yields by 22%, and increased farmer profits by 68%. The yield gains are due to more effective pest control and thus lower crop damage, and the benefits have been largest for smallholder farmers in developing countries who have dramatically reduced their insecticide applications as a result of GM crops. This has benefited both farmer health and also the environment and beneficial insects. Now researchers throughout the public and private sector are using this breeding tool to deliver other benefits to society. Researchers at Hawaii and and Cornell University have used it to produce a virus-resistant papaya, a product which has literally saved the Hawaiian papaya industry. Other introductions include drought-resistant corn, virus-resistant squash, consumer traits like a non-browning apple, a low acrylamide potato, and crops that produce oils improved for nutrition. None of these applications require the use of any chemical pesticides, an issue that often gets conflated with this technology. University researchers are working to develop GM oranges that are resistant to citrus greening disease, something that is devastating the Florida orange industry. And here in New York, researchers are using a wheat gene to develop GM American chestnut trees resistant to the imported chestnut blight. If approved, these trees will be distributed to the public in a not-for-profit program to restore the American chestnut tree to the eastern forests. Plant diseases annually destroy some 15% of our world's agricultural harvest, a number that is likely to grow as our climate changes. There are many publicly funded groups around the world working to develop GM disease-resistant varieties of crops, including apples, bananas, cassava, cowpea, eggplant, grapes, potatoes, rice, sweet potatoes and wheat. Some of these staple crops are an essential source of nutrient in the diets of the poor. And it doesn't stop at plants. Researchers at CUNY are working with an international consortium to develop genetically engineered cattle that are resistant to African sleeping sickness, a disease that kills several thousand people and three million cattle annually. This project is being publicly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the US National Science Foundation. All of these GM applications focus on controlling disease with genetics, rather than chemicals, an objective that I would argue is compatible with agroecology, sustainability, and feeding more people better with less environmental impact. There are literally dozens of other applications in field trials globally, nitrogen-efficient and flood-tolerant rice, drought-tolerant wheat, and BioCassava Plus, a private-public partnership that will use GM to increase the nutrient levels, shelf life, and disease resistance of cassava, a major source of carbohydrates in parts of the world. Improved cassava harvests could increase the incomes of African households, helping lift poor farmers, many of them women, out of poverty. 
I could go on, but none of this would be possible without the broad scientific consensus about the safety of GM and solid data to support that consensus. A 2013 review article written by independent Italian public sector scientists reviewed over 1,700 scientific records on GE crop safety published this past decade and concluded that the scientific research conducted so far has not detected any significant hazards directly connected with the use of GE crops. My own 2014 review paper examined both well-designed animal feeding studies and the field performance and health trends of the over 100 billion food-producing animals that have been consuming GM feed over the last decade and found no credible evidence of harm. The American Association for the Advancement of Science, the world's largest and most prestigious scientific society, stated in 2012, the science is quite clear. Crop improvement by modern molecular techniques of biotechnology is safe. They're joined by the World Health Organization, the American Medical Association, the US National Academy of Sciences, the British Royal Society, and every major regulatory agency in the world. Given the realized benefits the potential of this science and the documented safety record, I urge you to allow breeders to use this valuable method to improve crops and vote yes for tonight's motion. Thank you, Alison Van Eenenum. And the motion is genetically modified food. And here is our final debater to speak against the motion, Chuck Benbrook. He is a research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. Ladies and gentlemen, Chuck Benbrook. Thanks, folks, and uh, thanks to Intelligence Squared for having me back. I, I figured I uh, uh, used up my welcome last time, but glad to be back again. Well, I guess the reason we're having a debate is uh, perhaps there isn't complete agreement on some of the things that uh, we've been discussing al already. Uh, in fact, you know, Rob and Allison, if, if all of what you said was true, I would be over there at your side of the table going, going at it with, uh, with poor Marty all by herself. I do think it's, it's time for sort of a national fireside chat about uh, the applications of agricultural biotechnology and food production. And I'm actually glad it's happening. We've had a number of highly contested state-level ballot initiatives on labeling of GE food. And as a result, the awareness and consciousness of people around the country is, is going up. And that, that's a good thing. The, there, there's tough choices for our society about whether we want to go down this road of more intensive, uh, uh, specialized, uh, input-intensive in, uh, agriculture kind of with genetic engineering leading the, the train or whether we want to steer agriculture uh, in some other directions. So a couple of things I ask of the audience as you listen to the back and forth tonight, and there'll be, there'll be a lot of it. I ask you to vote on the reality of what genetically engineered crops, the ones that are on the market today, have actually brought about. And not just how well they worked for the first three or four years. And I think we, you know, the record's very clear. They were rapidly adopted. They worked very well. Uh, they were spectacularly effective, and particularly the Roundup-ready crops. And this, these are the so-called herbicide-tolerant crops, which made it easy for farmers to control weeds in corn, soybeans, and cotton. Those were the three big crops. We'll mostly talk about those tonight. So don't, don't you know, don't base this on the promise and the aspirations of the biotechnology industry and the things that the biotech industry thinks that at some point the science will deliver. Things like 
corn plants that affix their own nitrogen or drought-tolerant crops or nutritionally enhanced crops. Some of these things may eventually be achieved, but they haven't yet. And I ask you to think about the, what's the reality of genetic engineering agriculture today as opposed to the promise or the aspiration. I also uh, suggest and ask you to think about the impacts of genetically engineered crops as a package. It's not just the, the genes that Rob Fraley and his colleagues at Monsanto were able to work into the corn plant, but you have to think about how that corn plant behaves in the, in the field, the yields, what the impacts of the BT proteins that are all throughout that plant are on the environment, on aquatic ecosystems, on the costs of farmers. And of course, in the case of the herbicide-tolerant crops, the, the great concern is this huge increase in herbicide use that's, that's started about a decade ago and has gotten worse and worse and worse each year. And, and now the, the, the industry and the government has just approved the next generation of, of herbicide-tolerant crops that are now engineered to tolerate two of the riskiest old herbicides that have been in use for a long time. You'll hear the word 2,4-D and, and dicamba. Uh, this is uh, definitely not a step in the, in the right direction. So we have to think about the totality of the impacts, including we have put so much energy as a country, and the industry has put most of its plant breeding effort or eggs in the GE basket for these uh, herbicide-tolerant crops and BT crops. And there's a lot of other priorities that plant breeders have not focused on as seriously as they should have. And, and that's a, that is a cost of the technology. We're going to talk a lot about uh, safety today. Um, rest assured, there is no consensus about the safety of GE foods, and there are a number of reasons to be more concerned in 2014 than we were in 1996, the year that they were introduced, or in 2000, which was about the time uh, so the adoption of herbicide-tolerant soybeans was very high. Um, and really, with each passing year as more and more GE plants are, are, are uh, grown. As more herbicides are required to bring them to harvest, the list of both health concerns and envir environmental concerns is growing, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get back to them. There was a National Geographic, wonderful National Geographic series about the future of food the last year, and perhaps many of you read at least some of them. In the May uh, 2014 issue of National Geographic, there was kind of a capstone piece that sort of presented a plan forward to meet the, the needs of 9 billion people on a on a earth with shrinking resources. It, and this guy, Jonathan Foley, an academic for, uh, from the University of Minnesota, he wrote a piece, a five-step plan to feed the world. It's a really a great piece. It's short. Uh, so here's where his five steps, and I, I quote exactly how he states them. Freeze agricultural's footprint. And by this, in his discussion, he's talking about let's not clear any more tropical rainforests. Uh, let's leave most of the wildlands wild. Second, grow more on the farms that we have. And this is absolutely right on. I mean, you know, in, in the developed world, 
farmers, you know, harvest uh, 150 to 250 bushels of corn. In Africa, you know, 40 to 60. So there's great potential around the world to raise the yields on the on uh, farms that really have worn out soils, don't have uh, access to a lot of inputs. So growing more on the farms we have is clearly a, a critical part of the um, the solution. The, his uh, Foley's third uh, um, uh, way to help uh, feed the world, uh, it was use resources more efficiently. This is kind of a, a no-brainer. It's, a, it's a, a, something that uh, obviously most of the agricultural inputs that today's corn, soybean, cotton farmers use are petroleum-based. Uh, as the price of energy goes up, their price is going to go up, and, and perhaps their availability will come into question. So obviously, we have to use petroleum-based inputs more efficiently and water more efficiently. The fourth, a very important one, shift diets. Uh, us Americans, people in Europe, we eat, we eat very high on the hog. We eat a lot of meat, and it takes a lot of food calories to produce a single calorie of beef, about 100 to Chuck, 1. Chuck Benbrook, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll get it. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is genetically modify food. So keep in mind how you voted at the beginning of the evening. I'll remind you one more time that you'll be asked to vote a second time after you've heard all of the arguments and the teams whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Now on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another directly and take questions from me and from you at our live audience here in New York. Our motion is this, genetically modify food. The team arguing for the motion, Robert Fraley and Alison Van Eenenum, have argued that uh, um, genetic engineering of food is no holy grail, but that it is a tool that can be used to help an enormous number of people. They say the proof of this is the fact that farmers have been using it because, in fact, it works for them. They say their safety has been established over 20 years without a single known injury related to the consumption of uh, genetically engineered food, that the studies are a waterfall of support for this argument and also for the benefits themselves of, genetic, uh, of uh, genetically engineered food. And they talk about the possibilities in the future of plants that can crush, absolutely crush plant disease and survive, which, which would be better for all. It's a lot of promise about the future. The team arguing against the motion, Margaret Mellon and Chuck Benbrook, they're saying don't look at the future, look at the present. And their argument is that so far uh, genetically engineered food has not lived up to its promise. It's pulled off a couple of very neat and important tricks, but not all that was promised in the beginning. They say that they're not necessary um, that they are not proven safe, and that, in fact, uh, contrary to the other side's assertions, that there is no consensus on their safety. I want to go first to the safety question and take the argument back to Chuck Benbrook, who just completed in your opening statements. Chuck, you said that there is no consensus on this. Your opponents have actually framed the statement that there's no scientific consensus on the safety of genetically modified food as being akin to people challenging the science behind global warming, that that you, you have, they didn't literally say this, but you have to be a little bit of a crank not to, uh, not to buy the science. What's your response to that? Um, I've, I've read uh, essentially all of these statements by uh, various bodies, and, and here's what they essentially all say. They use slightly different words. 
They say that genetic, the genetic engineering of food as a technology does not create any new or different potential risks in the modified foods that other forms of plant breeding don't. Several of the reports, including both of the two National Academy of Science reports that specifically address this, say that there is a possibility that genetically engineered foods may pose higher risk of that nature, but we really don't know. They also all say that there's no convincing evidence now or at this point that there's been acute health problems in the U.S. population from the consumption of genetically engineered foods. And then they all go on to call for further investment and the development of more sensitive uh, scientific techniques to assess the possible risks. And they also call for post approval surveillance. And most of the recommendations for better science, more careful risk assessment, and post-market surveillance that have been made for over 15 years in these reports have not been acted upon uh, all right, in let's, the U.S. Let's let your opponent, Robert Fraley, respond. Uh, so first of all, uh, you know, don't want to repeat what I said earlier, but you know, this science is, uh, has been around literally since the 1970s and had broad applicability to health and, and agriculture with an impressive safety record. I mean, not a single issue of animal or, or human safety with the technology. That's because it's inherent that we've been moving genes from the beginning of time, but also I just want to illustrate how important you know, the, the regulatory oversight has been. Uh, Chuck and I first met when uh, we put in place the USDA, EPA, and FDA oversight, which is still the gold standard around the world. But, but every country that we ship corn or soybeans to around the world has already done their independent health and safety assessments, as well as literally thousands of academic studies that all point to the same conclusion that's been codified by every major science organization around the world. All right, let me stop you for these a second. Products are safe. I, I just want to ask Margaret Mellon, do you concede that point or do you refute it? No, I do not concede it. So what, why, um, what's wrong about his facts then? Well, I think that there is agreement that there is, that, that there is no evidence that the current applications of, of uh, genetic engineering have dramatic, acute, short-term no, effects. No, no, but, but, the, the, but the thrust of the argument, and then you can go on yeah, to your point, sure. the thrust of his argument is that there, is, that there has been an enormous amount of vetting going on at government levels around the world and that this in itself would act as a safety net. Do you, do, do you, refute, do you refute that that sort of vetting is going I on? I think that there's a lot of review that's gone on, and I think that it is focused on the point that I've just made, that there are no acute, dramatic effects of, of uh, the consumption of genetically modified organisms. Those, all of those safety, all of those uh, assessments have left open this notion. Two, two things. One, that there there could be subtle, long-term effects that we have not identified, and that each application of genetic engineering needs to be looked at separately. So, whatever you say about Roundup-ready crops, that says nothing about these new gene silencing technologies that are right up the way. Okay. So a blanket assertion of safety isn't scientifically justified. Alison Beninen, would you like to respond? Um, sure. I mean, as a scientist, I, I would never make a blanket assertion about safety, and I think it's very much dependent on each particular sure. review, but I think that as a scientist, I let the data tell me whether there's safety concerns. And after 20 years and thousands of studies, and I feel the weight of, of the thousands of academic colleagues throughout the world that have done these safety studies that haven't found unique concerns, that I have to accept the evidence for what it is and let the data tell me whether it's safe. Margaret Mellon. But let's look at data like the, like the kind that, that you've accumulated in your meta-analysis. You're looking at... at 
cows, cows that are killed when they're very young, you know, maybe 14 or 15 months old, and you're drawing from the fact that that, the, that there haven't been a kind of increased condemnation rates at slaughter for cows Wait, over you, a long period of time. Can you just back up on the term of art? So looking at cows because they're actually consuming the feed. That's they're, they're consuming the feed that's, that is... Uh, and, they're, and they're opening them up and they're not finding what? Well, they're all, I believe that uh, Allison can tell us what she found in her study, but she just looked at the rates of condemnation when, What's at the word? abattoir. I mean, when you get to... Wait, an, condemnation? What you, if, a, if someone brings an obviously ill carcass... You know, to a slaughterhouse. It can't be sold as meat. Right. Okay. They are not. They're not going to be allowed to sell. And if you could look at those rates and correlate them uh, with, uh, uh, you know, look at them over the time that we've been uh, growing and that animals have been consuming this food, I think that's a valuable study and it tells you something. But it doesn't tell you very much. It certainly doesn't tell you about the effects of these crops, even on animals who live. A full lifetime. What would tell us? And I want to go to the other side. Just I'll give you 10 seconds. What kind of study would tell us the answer? You need to do long-term studies in animals. You need to do them progressively. Okay. And uh, we haven't... They, and we, in fact, need protocols for how to do the kinds okay, of studies that's 10 we seconds. need to be Robert done. Fraley. But if, you, if you look at Allison's uh, review, there's over two dozen long-term animal studies that point to exactly the same answer, that these products are safe. And that's, that's absolutely a fact. And the same agencies that, uh, that have reviewed all of this data are the same agencies that have reached the same conclusion on, you know, the gravity of science around global warming. You know, you go to the National Academy. You go to all of the major organizations. At some point, you know, consensus doesn't mean everybody agrees. It doesn't mean that there's a complete 100 percent alignment, just like there isn't on global warming. But the science speaks for itself here, and, and the science has reached a consensus on this. But, Chuck, you, you're, you said that if you thought that you would go to the other side, that you're not married to your position, that you're married to, to data? Because they're saying they have much more data for their position than you do. Uh, a couple of really important points need to be made. Um, the genetically engineered crops on the market today that are being planted by farmers and have been in the last few years are different from the genetically engineered crops that were planted in the early days. Uh, Rob Fraley and his colleagues have, have brought out a continuing series of, of improved, more effective products. And one of the things that they've done is they've stacked multiple traits into a single corn. One of the big concerns in the scientific community is that the Cadillac GE corn that Monsanto has developed is called Smart Stack, and it actually expresses eight different traits. So there's six different BT proteins that are expressed to control different insects, and two genes that confer tolerance to, to glyphosate, Roundup herbicide, and another herbicide called glufosinate. Well, this mixing of eight different traits in a single genetically engineered corn plant raises some you know, important scientific concerns, just like when you go to the doctor, the doctor's going to ask you what drugs you've been, uh, what other medications you might be on before prescribing you something else for some other problem you may have. The, so the regulatory agencies, the industry, no one has done any serious research on the potential problems from these stack traits that are in today's GE foods. So Allison, Allison is that sort of study called for? In other words, your opponents are saying we're getting into so many areas where we've never been before that we should go in a very, very cautious way and try to stay ahead of disaster by figuring out what's dangerous. Well, I mean, I guess as a breeder, we routinely stack traits. We're always selecting for multiple traits going into So this is to you all familiar and old hat. It doesn't it, feel it, new to you. Well, it's, it's, it's breeding. 
uh, you're always trying to improve multiple traits. And I think I need to understand um, the, the scientific kind of hypothesis why stack traits would be more dangerous when the individuals are not separate. I guess it's like looking at a broccolini, and you know broccoli's safe, and, and, and the, the um, other plant that was crossed why would a broccolini be more dangerous than its two parents? So what's your biological basis? The debate's not about broccolini. It's about GM foods. And I'd like to get back to what Robert Fraley said about they're accepted around the world. I mean, Robert, you know about the problem your sister company, Syngenta, has now getting corn shipments into China. Uh, in fact, the corn industry is in, uh, you know, in, in very concerned about the growing rejection of shipments in China and some other countries because of unapproved traits. And, and in fact, we've been reading about ADM and Cargill, two of the largest grain companies in the United States, have sued uh, Syngenta. And there's like 50 lawsuits from farmers because of the lost income. So it, it's really, I think, uh, disingenuous to suggest that uh, all over the world, all countries have opened their arms to GE crops when, in fact, right, the let's trend let's is let him to, respond to close Robert, Robert Fraley, so yeah, the picture's not so, so rosy. Let, let me, I'd be happy to respond to that, although it's you know, someone else's product. But I, I just want to come back. No, and, no, I, I want you to stay on point. I want you, for, you can come back well, later. I'm, but I'm trying to. So the, the, the question we got into this was But, the but Robert, Robert let, let me run the debate, okay? Right. I, I just, and, and you I, do a great job of it, John. I, but I will come back to you. I will give you a chance yeah, to do that. Perfect. That'd be, um, that'd I just be great. Wanna, I want to come to the point because it's right in front of us now yeah. that the, the picture, you, part of the argument you made was that the, the ready acceptance around the world and your opponents just right. say, so, okay, not your company, but, but the product. Sure. Let, so let's uh, talk about it. So the issue is to, to get the uh, the products sold in the United States, you get FDA, USDA, and EPA approval, but then you get the import approval from all the countries around the world. Syngenta got the approval for every country but China, and China is notoriously slow in their regulatory process, and, uh, you know, there may be a little politics involved in this particular case. But, you know, they got 38 out of 39 import approvals, and there's one more to go, and I know they've been working really hard to get that approval. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate when there's a market disruption, but it probably wouldn't surprise folks here to know that there's uh, sometimes a little bit of politics and a little bit of, uh, of mischief behind the scenes, and, and that's what's going on here. Margaret Mellon to respond. Well, I, I mean, I think it's very important to note how much hassle, trade hassle, is associated with uh, the fact that the U.S. continues to embrace and push genetically modified food on the rest of the world, M some of whom like it and many of whom don't. Um, in fact, there is, I think, a billion dollars of lost sales as a result of this, uh, of this trade disruption that we're talking about, but that's just one of many. I mean, there have been contamination uh, uh, incidents of all kind that have resulted in, in American crops being turned back. I mean, this is an expensive technology for us to push in today's world. Uh, it's amazing to me that the big grain traders, Cargill and uh, um, ADM, um, are suing the, the biotech companies, and they're suing them for huge amounts of money. I mean, this is... This is serious business to them. They're losing a, mon a lot of money, and they're, not, frankly, not getting much in the way of, okay. of benefits from the technology. So, I mean, I, I think it does signal that there is discomfort with uh, technology around the world. Some of it may be okay. political, but, um, but it's Margaret, sure Margaret, I'm going to stop you there because point made. Robert, I did say I'd let you come back to your point, so it's your time. Sure. So I just, you know, 
you said a lot about trade. Let me just make the point. 60% of the U.S. corn gets exported around the world and a third of our soybeans to markets that accept these products. We are the breadbasket to the world. It's unfortunate when there's a disruption, but it's been really minor against the context of the benefits that these products have provided for, uh, for food security. The point I was trying to make uh, on the safety studies is each of these genes is regulated individually and looked at, and they are also looked at collectively. And there is no reason to believe that they have any, any concern in terms of, of stacking them together. In fact, Chuck, I remember one of the first times we met you actually reminded me that the best way to bring this technology into the marketplace was to bring multiple products together so we had more durability and better insect protection. And in so many cases, the industry's done exactly what you've said. Uh, yes, that, that, that's true. I mean, we, so to have six different uh, BT proteins in, in corn, the, the idea kind of goes back to the Frank Sinatra song, you know, if the right one don't get you, then the left one will. But the problem is we now we know that insects, they, they have the ability, once they develop resistance to one BT protein, it becomes much easier and quicker to develop resistance to others. And we now know in both in cotton insects and in corn insects, we've got corn rootworms out there resistant to three of the six BT proteins in his corn already, and it's only been on the market for four years. So... Well, you know, having multiple BT proteins in there sort of sounds like a good idea. It's it's already not playing out as as planned. And think about it. On an acre of corn, the six different BT proteins add up to 3.7 pounds of of the 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 bioinsecticide that's inside that corn. And that is allowing farmers to not use a tenth or perhaps two-tenths of a pound of a soil insecticide. So how do you reduce pesticide use if you're replacing two-tenths okay. of a pound with 3.7 so, so you moved to where I wanted to go next, which is into the effect on the environment. So we've discussed safety. Everybody said what I think they're going to say on it, and there's a bit of an impasse. But uh, the inf- impact on the environment. And uh, Alison Vanin and your opponents have said that, that in, in fact, after getting off to a good start, in a sense, uh, this, the, the big success story of Roundup Ready Wheat um, and BT corn have, have somewhat backfired and that their impact on the environment has begun to be a negative because they've led to the use for, as you, uh, uh, weeds resistant to, um, to herbicide and to pesticides and more spraying as a result. What's your response to that? Well, I, I mean, again, I think you've got to look at the application and what the actual product is, and I think it's the... the, the um, effect of, of BT crops has been a dramatic reduction in insecticide use, especially in the developing world. And I mean, I stated the summary of that paper, which said the adoption has reduced chemical pesticide use by 37%. So I think that particularly BT crops have led to reduced use of um, insecticides. There have been um, a number of studies that have looked at, at herbicides, and depending upon which country you're talking about and which study and which crop, um, in some cases they've substituted Roundup for a different um, herbicide that they were using that was more environmentally degrading and that was that stayed longer in the environment. Okay, and so they've moved you, to a you've, safer. You've nailed herbicide. that point. I just I want to take it to, to your opponent to respond. Um, I just want to you know point out that for example the the meta study of the 147 other studies, none of those studies were done after the evolution of resistant organisms of resistant insects. So you're saying we don't know. You're saying that what your opponent says? No, I'm saying that the good news stories about biotechnology crops, um, and there are some, are all from the early days. But we can't 
we know that it is inevitable that resistance is going to develop. I also want to say, and, 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 and will undercut all of the benefits that we're talking about, I also want to say that the 147 studies really didn't, they did prove that there were benefits to GM crops, but not to GM traits. They often compared like one group of, of farmers, say, in India who had adopted uh, the technology, say a GM cotton technology, with other farmers who hadn't. But the, the GM uh, crops that were grown by the adopters were often much higher. They had been conventionally bred to be uh, much, uh, much improved uh, genetics. And so what you were really comparing was better conventional genetics and a BT crop to, uh, to uh, kind of poorer genetics without a BT trait. And, you know, that... That really says more about is there, the does, importance does of have, traditional she, breeding than it does about GE. Does, does she actually have a point uh, in that analysis? Um, I don't think Probably so. Fairly. I mean, no, farmers, how would you, the farmers. way to do those studies, if you want to identify the role of the GE trait, is to take isolines that don't have the GE trait, have farmers grow them in, under the exact same conditions as other farmers who are growing those those crops with the GE trait, and then see whether there's okay. any difference in, in uh, and those and of let's, the 147 studies. Let's let Alison Van Eenenham come That's actually, I mean, that's what's done as part of the agronomic assessment of the performance of GM crops. But these were actual field studies done throughout the world by independent researchers looking at what the actual effects have been. And the yeah, effects I, have been... I said, you've got to identify... You've got to isolate the GE trait if you're going to give the GE trait credit. John asked about to open up a discussion of the environmental impacts. Roundup-ready crops are grown now Take on... Take 10, 10, 15 seconds and tell people what? the dynamic of Roundup-ready crops. Okay, so farmer has a, a field of corn, soybeans, cotton, and weeds come up. In the past, they had to spray certain herbicides early in the season or cultivate the soil, but... And it was at, called Roundup. Well... Or it, one of them was called well, Roundup. Well, the Roundup is glyphosate herbicides, and in 1996, the first genetically engineered so-called herbicide-tolerant crop came on the market. And scientists at, at Monsanto put a new gene into corn, soybeans, cotton, and now other crops that makes it possible to spray glyphosate, which kills everything green that's growing. It would kill the corn without the gene. And so farmers can spray this broad-spectrum herbicide, a very effective herbicide. And not kill their corn. Not kill the corn, but kill the weeds. But what's happened is... In, in the early years, it worked great, but in 2000 in Delaware, the, in a soybean field, the first glyphosate-resistant weed, it was a Mars tail, was created by Roundup Ready soybeans. And scientists that warned about this happening before they were developed and even predicted it would take about five years, there it was. Okay, so the industry, okay, we better watch it. By 2004, we had six or eight different serious glyphosate-resistant weeds, mostly in the southeast, including this Palmer amaranth that the roots of it, the, the stalk of it can get as big as a, as a person's wrist, and it was breaking the cutter bars on cotton harvesting machines, and now there's like 100, how perhaps did, 100 did, million there, acres. I want to give you 15 weeds. more seconds. How did those weeds get to be resistant to Roundup? What, did they, what was their interaction with the corn? When you, when you spray one herbicide 
over and over again on weeds, they're going to develop resistance. Okay. I just wanted people to understand. It's sort of a random mutation. So I want to take that to Rob Fraley. This is your your area. Yeah, let, let let me reel all the way back in terms of the herbicide tolerant crops and the benefits they provided. So in, in the old days, when I was a kid growing up, I'd come home from school, I'd get on my dad's tractor, and we'd plow all the fields this time of year, and we'd turn all the dirt over, and that was the method that people used to kill weeds. The big benefit of Roundup Ready crops is it gave farmers the ability to use Roundup. How many of you in the audience have ever used Roundup to control weeds? I mean, it's very effective. It's a very safe product. It's generally regarded as the, as the gold standard. So it gave farmers uh, a more environmentally friendly and a safer tool for controlling weeds. But the huge benefit, and, and absolutely the huge benefit of herbicide-tolerant crops has been the fact that it has basically eliminated tillage. We don't plow fields anymore. We don't expose that dirt to evaporation of the moisture. We don't, uh, we don't have the erosion. We don't have the instantaneous release of greenhouse gases when you flip the soil over. And, and since the adoption of herbicide-tolerant crops in this country in the mid-'90s, the rate of, of not plowing, of using conservation tillage, has more than doubled. But, Robert, are you, you going to get to benefit. this point about... Are you going to get to the part about the weeds becoming resistant? Sure. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, It's real simple. Evolution is alive and continues. And frankly, you know, we're going to see, as I think we get into issues of climate change and changes in microenvironments, we'll probably see more evolution and more resistance. Here's a simple question. You've all heard of antibiotic resistance. It's a problem, right? You're aware of it. So what should drug companies do? Should they not develop new antibiotics just because there's become a resistance to, a, to an antibiotic? Absolutely not. Roundup controls hundreds of weeds. In this country, 12 of them have become resistant. It still controls hundreds of weeds. It needs to be used effectively. And, Chuck, you were one of the first ones to point out that we should actually use combinations of herbicides, and that's what growers are doing today, and that's one of the the, the benefits of of being smarter and stewarding these products better. Rob, back when we had that conversation, I might have also suggested it's not a great idea to put antibiotics in plants. We're going to go to audience that? questions now, and so raise your hand. The mic will be brought to you. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you would identify yourself, and if you're a member of the press, we really would like you to identify yourself. Um, I can't resist calling on Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs> but I... I, I I have to say, Bill Nye, the science guy, that your question also has to be as good as everybody else's. So, My question is about time. Everybody can agree, I think, that you can know exactly what happens to any organism, any plant, any crop. But you cannot know, I believe, you cannot know what happens to an ecosystem. So can the four of you agree on a number of seasons, a number of years, a number of plantings and harvestings where we would be, I think what people are concerned about is the effects on an ecosystem where you accidentally create uh, You were almost at a question weed. mark there. Say again? You were almost at a question mark. You were well, I am. Well, what is, the, what is the time scale for each side? Is it, for in geologic time, it's at least centuries, not five seasons. So that's what everybody, I think, what many people are concerned about okay. with regard to genetically modified Thank food. you. Let's take it to Margaret Mellon. Well, I mean, from my perspective, uh, the time scale, you know, is something like decades. I mean, in the decades that we have seen herbicide-tolerant crops, uh, 
we have seen a dramatic downward effect on the uh, um, on the monarchs. I mean, as a result of Roundup killing the monarchs, only food. You're talking about butterflies. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. I'm talking about monarch butterflies. It turns out that it's called uh, milkweed. I'm not, not. <laughs> Come on. You thought I'm, I was thinking of, I'm thinking of people on the podcast. How did the royal family get into this? I don't. I, I wish I knew. Just looking um, for clarity. But you know, in that period of time, the the monarch population has decreased by almost 80%, and it is certainly because they've been deprived of, uh, of uh, their, their food, which is a milkweed. Um, we're seeing effects on honeybees, on, and they're all subtle effects. You know, it's not like killing the honeybees. It's making it impossible for the honeybee to find its way back to the nest. And that's why decades, you're saying. Cray, crayfish and earthworms. I mean, we are seeing effects right now that, are, that have ecological implications. So the time scale is not that great. Alison Van Eenenum. Yeah, I mean, I think you're conflating um, the technology with, with other issues. I don't, the, the monarch butterfly is due to more effective controls of milk weed. Um, and so if we want more weed, then we should grow more weed. But the fact that we're controlling weeds more effectively, <laughs> I guess from California, I probably shouldn't say that. Should That's I? another debate. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yes or no to this statement. Um, and, uh, you know, th- there's been no association with GMs and honeybees. I think that's just a, that's no, a red herring out there. What concerns me is that we're talking about problems that are associated with the technology without considering the benefits. And there's trade-offs with every production system. And what we need to do is remove the problems but retain the benefits, not just throw the technology Jeff out. What, what I'm concerned about, and many scientists... is that GE crops came on the market in 1996. Monsanto and and Rob Fraley's very talented uh, 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 molecular biologists, they're on their fifth generation now of genetically engineered corn. None of the GE corns that have been on the market have had a dominant position for more than five or six years. So we are moving from one generation of GE crops to the next to the next before we've even begun to understand what the impacts of the first one, uh, the first ones are. So uh, I would like to to have the ability to at least do two crop rotation cycles, which might be six or eight years, to see how the farming system has, has responded. But in that time period, just that time period, the technology has changed. So you never really get a handle on what has happened. Okay, I'm going to go to another question. Far up in the corner, against the wall, right? And if you could stand up and tell us your name, please. Hi, my name is Amy Bentley. I teach at New York University. And my question has to do with copyright. Uh, the copyright implications of the GM seeds. If both sides could speak to that, I'd appreciate it. You know what? I'm going to pass on it because it's a – I'm not saying that it's not relevant to the larger discussion, but it's not really getting us to the issues of the, that we've delineated of safety and impact on the environment. Right down here, ma'am. Thank you, though, for the question. Yes. And if you could stand up and tell us your name, please. My name is Nina Fedorov, and I've been um, one of the inventors of this uh, molecular technology. You're a ringer. 30 years. No, I'm just here. Okay. By chance. I would like to ask... I would ask... I'd like to ask Rob Fraley to tell us um, historically how rapidly corn lines and wheat lines and so forth evolve long before uh, GM hit the... Yeah, that's a... Wait, wait. 
Uh, yeah, I'm going to pass on that, too. Well, uh, no, because it, it, it's very well, relevant to what, what Ben Brooks said. In other words, he's saying... Well, I know, but, but you're kind of exactly. here to help out your partner to fix his question. Uh, not your partner, your colleague, former colleague, to yes. fix his question. So it's a little too messy for me. Can I actually <laughs> answer Bill Nye's, the Dr. Nye's question? Because we can pretend so that you're answering Bill Nye's question. Because, okay. because you asked the question, what kind of testing is required and what do we need to do? And, and that's, that's so relevant here because the testing requirements are, are developed by the USDA specifically to look at the evolution of pests and, and the impact on the environments. We do studies for, for several years to, to do the analysis that's been, uh, you know, then being reviewed by the agencies for their environmental impacts. And that's one of the key questions, the, the, uh, the uh, impact on the ecosystems, the, uh, on, on other species. That's all built into that regulatory system. And it's built on the fact that there is uh, in this country, we have been developing new crops from the beginning of time, new corn hybrids, new soybean varieties, new cotton varieties, and that experience from plant breeding has given us the insights and based the regulations in terms of how the GMO crops are regulated, okay. based on Ma'am, real practical, uh, real-world experience. You have eyeglasses uh, right there. And if you could stand up and tell us your name, please. Hi, I'm Michelle. Um, I'm wondering what are some of the uh, scientific studies that have been done uh, linking uh, genetically engineered foods uh, and crops to uh, human health? What are, are there connections I, I feel, with... I, again, I feel that we've covered that pretty extensively. I don't, I don't well, think we have. Well, we've had, we've had a number of conversations already about the question of whether the, what, that there's a cascade of studies that look at safety, and I assume that safety refers to health. Am I, d- does anybody on the panel feel that we haven't addressed that? We're not going to make any progress on that. <laughs> yeah, that's the only reason, is I feel like, yeah, uh, very, very vociferous waving there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hi, my name is Alice, and uh, this question may be answered by either Margaret or Charles. Um, my question is about the evidence. Uh, there's thousands of peer-reviewed studies showing that biotechnology doesn't pose a threat to human health. Again? Uh, on I... top of that, wait, uh, my, no, 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 this gets to a very valid question. Um, it better. Aside from the observational studies um, going over multiple generations of over 100 trillion animal meals, um, well, I'm sorry that I'm not the most eloquent of speaker that I can use notes. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Oh my uh, God! However, that I've lost asked, control. My <laughs> May I just my just, just go to you with your gut and get to your question? My question is: um, with all the studies and all the evidence and all the peer review, um, my question is: what what evidence would you accept as sufficient to change your mind? Since peer review obviously isn't enough. That's a question. Uh, <laughs> I would accept uh, the battery of tests set out by the Codex Alimentarius Commission, which is the internationally recognized body that sort of sets the testing rules for animal drugs, for pesticides, and other things. There is There was a six-year negotiation involving countries from around the world that defined the, the uh, a set of studies that should be done on each new genetically engineered food. Uh, I, I think it w- was sound then. It's still sound. And not a single GE food on the market today has been subjected to the battery of studies called for by Codex. All right, Chuck, you brought and out something. You brought certainly out something, none on the, you, new, the you, new GE You varieties. brought out something we didn't know. And I want to hear your opponents respond to the fact that there is these are, there's a set of standards that have been proposed for studying these that have not been used or addressed. Uh, I'll take it either. Go ahead. No, you take it. Yeah. So, uh, 
generally uh, there's not alignment on those studies, either their, uh, their validity or uh, their appropriateness for these types of products, and there's, there's not even recognition of that by the government agencies in this country. Uh, we, we comply to the laws of the, uh, of the United States and all the countries that, we, uh, that you know, import our crops. We are the breadbasket of the world. Two-thirds of the corn ships around the world to Europe, to Asia, and to other countries. You know what? I, 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 have to stop you. I have to stop you when you start going into talking points that you've repeated okay, endlessly. Thanks, yeah. Okay, because I, wanna, I really want to understand the point that was made that, there's a, that there is a set of standards, which you said you don't consider valid. But is that, yeah, because, is that because of the camp that you're in? Is that because of the camp you're in? Or is there actually a dispute about whether there are studies that could be done that for some reason are not being done? I'll take it to Alison Beninen first. Certainly not my area of expertise. Then, but I won't, there are then I'll go to the other okay. side, unless you want to take <laughs> well, it. Okay. Unless you want to take it, I'm not trying to Well, I, I guess to, to me it's what are the unique risks that all these safety studies are for? We're talking about a breeding method, and this, the, the data shows that there's no unique risks. And so we've, we already do extensive studies that cost millions of dollars to bring these products to market. If we're going to do more studies, it'll be even more expensive, and I want to know what the unique risks are that we're looking okay. for that are triggering these studies. A question that I would find interesting to come from the audience, and it, it does go to what Rob was just talking about. No, no, no. No, I'm serious because I'd like rather have it come from you in this portion. But it goes, does go to what Rob's talking about because one of his strongest points, and it is the talking point that he's come back to, is the impact of this technology on, on feeding the world and on solving problems. And I would like to explore that. And if I was the one still asking the questions, that's where I would be going. So <laughs> would somebody please say what I want to say? <laughs> I hope you do it now. Um, my name's Heather. And yes, that's really what my question was about. It seems like we're always um, comparing the success rates of GMO um, farming to a very, very chemically driven agriculture and not to uh, an organic agriculture. And that's where I get very confused with the argument because the um, against side seems to be against the chemically driven agriculture, whether it's in GMOs okay. or not. And is it viable to feed a, a world with organic farming? Do, do we need, do we need no. the technology t to survive, basically, is what you're asking. That's what part of the argument we're hearing from the other side. <laughs> I will, I will – let's let it go to the side first and then come back to you to, as a rebuttal since you've made the point several times. You're sure. good with that? No. Uh, who sure. would like to take it? Uh, Marty. Uh, Marty Mellon. First of all, the, the challenge of feeding the world's hungry people is not one that is met by production of any kind. I mean, if you want to feed hungry people around the world, I can give you a list of ten things to do. You can build roads. You can – raise their incomes, you can change the role of women, you can help people make their own decisions about what they want to grow and help them grow it. So production itself is not an answer to, uh, to the problems of hunger. But, it's, it's... But, beyond that, but beyond that, I want to say that, you know, that genetic engineering, as I tried to say in my, uh, original, uh, in my introductory remarks, is not really producing the kinds of traits that we need. Now, there are, I will just refer to one study in Nature magazine that was trying to help. It was a project. It started in 2010, trying to help uh, African farmers develop corn crops that would grow on nitrogen-poor soils. Now, in that period of time, that project has been able to produce 21 conventionally bred varieties of corn adapted, you know, around Africa that grow better in their nitrogen-poor soils. Genetic engineering, which was also used, has produced one 
and they don't think it'll be ready for 10 years. Okay, point made. Let's let Robert Fraley respond. Uh, first of all, th- thanks for that. Um, I was going to say that we, we might actually reach, us, reach some alignment. We've talked a lot about our differences, and, and one of the points I wanted to make, and you, you, know, um, you, you cited the National Geographic. I give that same speech all the time. I absolutely believe that you know, this is a complicated challenge of feeding the world. It's going to take increased in productivity and efficiencies, and that's clear, and, and that's where these tools come into play. It's also important that we reduce food waste, and, you know, there's things that we can do by, uh, by protecting crops or providing refrigeration and diets. I, I absolutely agree. It's, it's a complicated question that will take all of the tools we have. And would you we agree have, that we excuse can't me, use let me, let me, 40% of our corn for ethanol? Uh, look, can we, we can address that if you want to, but let me just let me conclude my thoughts. Um, Food security challenge is the biggest challenge we face. We have to double the available food in 36 years. It's important that we make the right decisions today. The other important point on farming, and we've talked a lot about small farmers, my mentor was a guy named Dr. Norman Borlaug. And Norman always made the point that if you help a farmer you help poverty. Seventy percent of the world's poor are farmers. If you give them better tools to farm even incrementally better, you address not only poverty, but you address food security. And and so these are all complex, interrelated issues. There are no simple solutions, but I think we should play the game with all of our tools. All right. I want to let... I want to let uh, Charles, if you want to respond to that, but first I need to say this. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator, and we have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, genetically modify food. Chuck Benbrook. This, if, if we're, if you're going to, if, if you're persuaded that the argument from the biotech industry that this technology is essential to feed the world, if this is what really grabs your interest in this, ask yourself this question. You have a 50-pound bag that you can get to a poor African farmer trying to grow maize on worn-out soils. You can give that farmer a 50-pound bag of nitrogen fertilizer, or you can give him a 50-pound bag with smart stack corn. Now, I think Rob Fraley would agree to me that African farmer is going to get a bigger boost out of the 50 pounds of nitrogen than out of his magic seeds. Can I I address that? I mean, I I think that's a false balance. You know, I don't think we have to choose one or the other. And I think if you provide that farmer with an insect-resistant crop like a BT maybe, then it's protected from insects and then also have some fertilizer, then maybe you can improve the yield sufficiently to feed his family and also sell some product and help lift himself out of poverty. So I don't think we have to choose one or the other. I think that's a false balance. Margaret Mellon, do you want to respond? I don't think you have to choose one, uh, either one or the other either. But I do think it's very important to kind of get the power of the technologies in perspective in order to make the right decisions about where to put our money going forward. And right now, I think we have too much faith in genetic engineering, which, as I said, has not it really hasn't proven itself except in one uh, in one instance. So. I do think it's important that we, uh, that we face that. I also yeah. want to say how you know, we need to use all our tools. I want to give a shout-out to traditional breeding. I mean, since uh, well before genetic engineering came on the, the scene, 
traditional breeders and, uh, and agronomists were able to produce 1 to 2% a year increases in corn and soybean uh, uh, yields in this country for, for decades. It happened before biotech. All the way through the biotech uh, era, we have continued to get 1 to 2% uh, uh, yields decade after decade. And we would continue to get them if we weren't using genetic engineering, you know, sometime in the future. So we need to to uh, acknowledge how important that technology is, and it is not getting the attention that it deserves. Allison, I mean, uh, let's let Allison Van Eenen respond to that. Yeah. Let, me, let me take a quick response. All right, Rob I, I, you know, we're dangerously close to common ground here. I, I absolutely believe everything you said. In fact, let me just tell you a little bit of secret. You know, I run the research program for Monsanto. We spend exactly twice as much of our research dollars on plant breeding as we do on biotech. Absolutely, plant breeding, particularly assisted by these molecular tools, has a great opportunity and has a huge impact internationally. We work with the Gates Foundation to use these tools to breed uh, to breed drought-resistant uh, maize for Africa, and we're working with them on other projects. So Rob, one, couldn't one, agree more. One, uh, one, one part of, uh, I think, of Margaret's argument is that the focus on genetically engineered crops sort of sucks the oxygen out of the room and and sort of denigrates interest in, in more conventional methods, which she says would substitute perfectly well for genetic engineering. And I'd like either you or, or Alison Beninim to respond. You know, I, I, I think the debate around GMO crops sucks all the air out of the room. Um, I, 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 I think we're to the point where it's become a sideshow. It's become a distraction. I know, but that doesn't answer the question. Uh, well, for example, wheat, wheat tends to be done by public breeders, and I know the, the public breeders are, are using conventional selection yeah. and are basically locked out of using GM as, as a, it's a synergistic tool. It can be used for very specific things like disease resistance much more effectively, potentially, and, and combining the two together would be a really beneficial thing. And so I, I just don't see it as being mutually exclusive. You have to do conventional breeding or genetically engineering. I, I agree with that. But okay. I also, I mean, every time I hear about what genetic engineering is going to do, I always remember the promises that I've been hearing for decades, um, many of which have never come to fruition. Does anybody want to respond to that before we take one more question? Because it's a point that was made earlier that was sort of left lying out there, that, that the, there was a lot of promise and then a couple of tricks have been pulled off, but not broadly in, throughout agriculture. Well, there, there are certainly products in the pipeline that have been delivered and things like the disease resistance papaya and I guess as a public sector scientist I get a little bit frustrated by the same groups that are, are out there kind of um, scaremongering about the technology are at the same time saying why hasn't anything come to market because it's really that that's stopping the public sector from developing these products. Right down in front here. Uh, down one row? Thanks. If you could stand, please. Hi, I'm Mike. Um, so we've seen that often when you use new genes, uh, they have some great uses, and then after a couple of years they fade off, and maybe you come up with a new cocktail and try the same thing again. Um, I'm wondering, in the real scheme of time, as, as Bill was getting at, are we going to run out of tricks and basically play into bugs' wildest dreams, create super strong bugs, and have run out of genes to fight them? A lot of cotton farmers in the southeast have uh, voted with their their operations and aren't growing cotton anymore. They can't deal with the resistant weeds. There's 
three or four different glyphosate-resistant weeds in, in a lot of the cotton acreage in the, in the southeast. And there's grave concern in the Midwest that the same fate will occur in the Midwest where we, you know, we grow all, most of the corn and soybeans. Corn and soybeans are the backbone of the U.S. food system. And if we have a, a weed-resistant weed meltdown in, in the Midwest, it'll be is, a serious national is it, problem. Is it plausible? I'll we're go on to, track to for it. Freely. Is, track I mean, is there a bug apocalypse coming up? bug Could you restate the question? <laughs> I, I really should. Uh, <laughs> The, but, but his question was, are we, is, are we going to come ultimately to a total meltdown where we, where we would run out of tricks and where the, the, uh, the bugs would win? I think only if we stop investing in the science in the future. Um, you know, absolutely. I, you know, I mentioned in my opening remarks, you know, concern over resistance development is a concern. It's been a concern from the beginning of time. But we have incredible tools. I'm actually proud of the fact that we are developing our third and fourth generation technologies and staying ahead of the curve. And if we can move forward with the science and all of the tools, I mean, we need to make the advances in breeding. We need to make the advances in biotechnology. Tremendous opportunity for precision agricultural tools to farm more smartly. We're going to need all of these tools. We have to double the food supply in 36 years. What wakes me up in the morning is I know we can do it if we can reach alignment on moving forward and, and, and using the common ground. We all care about food security. We all care about the environment. Let's get smart and move forward. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is... Genetically modify food. And right after our closing uh, round, which will be uh, two-minute statements by each debater in turn, we will have a vote again. So on to round three. Round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. They will be two minutes each. And here to speak for the motion, Allison Van Enenum, a genomics and biotechnology researcher in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. This past week, the U.S. celebrated Thanksgiving, a wonderful holiday, and we had 14 people over to our house. And as a hostess, my task was to serve a safe, delicious meal. You know the drill, keeping the raw turkey out of contact with food surfaces, making sure you cook it enough to get rid of foodborne illness, but not so much as to be dry, all whilst drinking a glass of wine, which probably added to the risks. Um, but actually, food um, poisoning is, is a real risk, and 3,000 people a year die of food poisoning. As we gave thanks for this abundant cornucopia, the one risk I was not concerned about was whether any of the food was genetically modified. And I was serving this meal to the people I love most in the world, my dearest friends, my husband, my two teenage sons. Their well-being is of paramount importance to me. And as a parent, it's my responsibility to use the best possible information to protect their health and to determine what the scientific consensus is on technology. That is why my kids drink pasteurised milk and have had all of their childhood vaccinations. Sometimes the risks that concern people and the risks that kill people are entirely different. For too long, the debate over the merits of genetically modified food has focused on unrealised hypothetical risks and has been conflated with the use of pesticides. It is not addressed how GM could help with the very real risks faced by the hungry and malnourished. There are costs associated to excessive precaution. Doing nothing is doing something. 
During the 90 minutes we've had this debate, approximately 1,500 people died of hunger, more than all of you here in this room. Hunger and malnutrition are real risks, risks that kill over 20,000 people daily, and most of those who die are children. These are not talking points, they're people. As a mother and a scientist, what concerns me is the fear-mongering campaign against genetically modified food is forestalling scientists from using this breeding method to help produce more nutritious and sustainable food sources for millions of people. Vote yes for GM food. Thank you, Alison Van Eenenum. And our motion is genetically modified food. And here to give his closing statement against this motion, Chuck Benbrook. He is program leader of Measure to Manage Farm and Food Diagnostics for Sustainability and Health. Unfortunately, the way that the GE technology and, and crop revolution has unfolded, it's, it's really turned into kind of an arms race with weeds using herbicides as the, the, the sole hammer. And as a result, we've had this spread of resistant weeds and, and also the uh, uh, rapid, especially in the last 10 years, escalation in the use of herbicides. There may have been 100 million pounds or so of insecticides not applied since 1996 because of Bt corn and cotton, but there's been six or 700 million more pounds of herbicides. Now, the word pesticide encompasses both herbicides and insecticides. So if you've reduced insecticide use by 100 million pounds, and that's a good thing, but herbicide use has gone up by 600 million-plus pounds, how do you come up with pesticide use going down? It's just not true. And a lot of farmers would take considerable exception to the claims from the other side of, of the die here about pesticide use going down and their job being easier. In, in 1995, the year before the GE revolution, there was about 27 million pounds of glyphosate applied by farmers in American agriculture. Uh, Ten years later... Uh, it, it had gone up to 157 million pounds. And in 2014, USDA data shows pretty clear it's about 230 million pounds of glyphosate was applied. We have about 300 million acres of cultivated cropland. So we're talking about two-thirds of a pound of glyphosate herbicide, if it was spread evenly across the United States, could be applied on every acre of cropland. That's why we've got glyphosate in our blood, in our hair, uh, that's why we ha the scientists are concerned, even though it's generally regarded as a relatively safe pesticide, there's reason for serious worry here. Thank you, Chuck Benbrook. The motion, genetically modified food, and here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Robert Fraley, Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Monsanto. Thanks for uh, for a great uh, debate and uh, for listening to the, to the commentary. I hope it's uh, it's helped provide you more insight into the uh, the important science and the important tools that GMOs represent. What I'd like to do is actually highlight what a vote against the motion really means, what it would be like to live in a world without GMO crops, what that would look like. First thing, there would be a significant impact to the land. Without GMOs, farmers would need to dramatically increase their use of herbicides and insecticides. I estimate it would be about 100 million pounds added to the environment each year. Second, since GMOs improve yields and help farmers deliver more food, in their absence means we're going to have to farm more land. 
And, uh, you know, it's going to take uh, about 120 million acres more land to just keep where we are today. That's about one California or four New York, New York states. And the pressure that we'll put on will mean we'll drain more wetlands, we'll, we'll cut down more forests, we'll look at more prairie lands because people will fundamentally eat. Third, voting against uh, the GMO technology really means exacerbating climate change because it means we go backwards. We have to manufacture more chemicals. We have to take tractors and run up and down the fields and plow, and we release more greenhouse gas emissions. Banning GMO crops is equivalent to taking and putting 26 million new cars on the road from a greenhouse perspective. It also means higher food prices. North Carolina State just published a a study showing that the average family going and not using GMO crops adds about $3,000 a year to their food bill, and that impacts everybody, and we all bear the, the cost of that. And finally, voting against GMOs means foregoing all those opportunities that Dr. Van Eneman has talked about. You know, it's a relatively new technology. The future is ahead of us. We're at the tip of the iceberg stage in what's possible. So I hope for the sake of all of our families, and I hope for the sake of all the people on the planet, that you vote to keep all of our options open and vote yes to support GM food. Thank, Thank you, you, Robert Fraley. And the motion is genetically modify food. And here to summarize her position against the motion, Margaret Mellon, a science policy consultant and former senior scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. You know, we really haven't heard a single piece of evidence tonight that, that supports the notion that somehow genetically engineered crops are important for helping hungry people eat. And I think that's really, you know, we, there is no evidence for that. If there's a consensus study out there, it's the World Bank consensus study that GE crops are not important to solve food security uh, problems. If you want to know what the world would look like without GE, you might want to look at Europe. Europe has an incredibly productive agriculture, so much so that they're all paying, you know, subsidies just like we're we're paying. They have a, uh, um, uh, I, I would say, they're still using too much in the way of uh, of herbicides and pesticides, but it's a very productive, safe, uh, and uh, uh, capable. Uh, agriculture system that you know we would we would all be I think very comfortable to live in. Um, we have to look at the fact that there are still safety concerns about this technology, um, particularly about the long term uh, the long term effects, and that's what the American Cancer Society says. Yes, the current tech, the current uh, products are safe, but no the. Uh, but the long-term concerns are still out there. So we can't pretend that those issues have been thrown away. Um, I think we can say that since genetic engineering has been introduced, it has simply failed to address the big problems that are out there, the problems that are leading to dead zones uh, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, um, but that there are technologies that can do that, and they are traditional breeding and uh, agroecology, which have not gotten enough discussion. So, Margaret Millen, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank I you very urge much. I you to vote against it. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now it's time to learn which side has argued the best. We want you to go again to the keypads at your seat and vote a second time on this motion. Genetically modify food. 
If you side with this motion and with this team, push number one. With this, the, 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 uh, against the motion and this team, push number two. And if you became or remain undecided, push number three. And it'll take us uh, normally about 90 seconds to, uh, to get the final result. But while we're doing that, the, the first thing I want to say is this is obviously a very, very... This is obviously a very, very passionate debate, and there are strong feelings on all sides. Um, but even with that, uh, I felt that the, the, the integrity and the civility the debaters brought to the stage, they lived up to the spirit of Intelligence Squared. So I congratulate you all for that. And everyone who raised his or her, her hand to ask a question, and even the questions that I threw out, I respect you for getting up and asking them because it takes a lot of guts, even if you have to read them. And uh, congratulations to them for doing that. Now, there's, there's something new that I'm doing tonight. It's a one-time-only thing. But um, as I mentioned, we have a podcast that goes out. And it turns out that there's a, there's a fan of Intelligence Squared named uh, Ryan Everts, who wrote to us and said that he and his girlfriend sort of uh, court one another by, in part by listening to Intelligence Squared podcasts. And he wrote uh, a very important note. He said it was through, it helped my girlfriend and me to better engage with each other on fairly sensitive topics. It was through these episodes that we were able to discuss and learn more about each other's perspectives and opinions, though we disagree on some political issues. We understand one another and respect each other's views on a much deeper level. And he got that from listening to us. <laughs> this is going to go a little bit further. He contacted us because he's planning to propose marriage in about two weeks. And he asked me if I would record a mock debate motion about whether his girlfriend should marry him or not. <laughs> so with the acoustics of the room and with all of your presence and voices, I'm about to do that. He's out there listening right now on the live, uh, the live stream. I'm, make, I'm sure he's making sure that his girlfriend, Nicole Morris, is not listening. Otherwise, the whole thing is blown. And, <laughs> and if anybody out there knows Nicole Morris, don't tell her about this. But here it goes. That sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Nicole Morris, will you give Ryan the honor of caring and loving you for the rest of your lives? And arguing for the motion, we have Ryan Everts. He was your neighbor back in Oakland and now lives with you here in Denver. <laughs> Ryan is deeply in love and would love... Ryan is deeply in love and would love nothing more than to grow old together with you. So I say to this audience, yes or no to this statement. Should Nicole Morris say, I do? Yeah. All right, I'm going to thank you for that. That was lovely. Uh, so I, I, one thing I want to do is I want to thank our generous uh, supporters and donors uh, who make these debate possible. The ticket sales don't come close to covering the cost of mounting these debates, so uh, their, their, their help is really appreciated by us. Uh, and as the holidays come up, I would 
encourage you to go to our website and make a donation at iqtus.org. Um, our spring season is starting on Thursday, January 15th. The motion will be Amazon is the reader's friend. We have... Uh, <laughs> We have some best-selling authors, including Scott Turow, Joe Conrath, uh, Franklin Foer of The New Republic, and Vox's Matthew Iglesias. They're debating whether Amazon is good for readers and books. Other topics we'll be covering this spring include America's Decline, the right to be forgotten, presidential war powers, abolishing the death penalty, and whether smart tech is making us dumb. For the full list of debates, you can go to our website. Uh, it's at iq2us.org. And as I mentioned before, you can download our app uh, on Apple and Android mobile devices, IQ2US. Just look for that app. And on that app, you can get all of our debates and research, et cetera. Uh, this was debate number 98 in February. We're going to hit 100, and we're delighted about that. So. All right, I now have the final results. You have voted twice, once before the debate and once again after the debate. And again, the numbers, and again, the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Let's look at the first vote. In the first vote on the motion, genetically modified food, 32% agreed, 30% were against, 38% were undecided. Those are the first results. Remember again, the team whose numbers changed the most between first and second will be declared our winner. Let's look at the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 60%. They went from 32% to 60%. They picked up 28 percentage points. That is the number to beat. But let's look at the team against the motion. Their first vote was 30%. Second vote, only 31%, only a 1% move. That means the team arguing for the motion, genetically modified food, has carried this debate. Our congratulations to them. And thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.